Dateline, Salt Lake Tribune, January 4th, 1897. Headline, Least for Immoral Use. Quote, For some time past, a controversy has been carried on among the directors of the Brigham Young Trust Company. The question at issue was the management of its commercial street property, the company owning nearly one half of the property on that thoroughfare. As is well known, the street from its past denizens bears an unsavory reputation. The trust company fought the inhabitants and wrestled with the city and at last had the streets cleared of its unpopular inhabitants. It then found that while the moral atmosphere had been cleansed, its buildings had shared a like fate. They offered stores and buildings to merchants for nearly nothing, but it was impossible to find a tenant. For the past few years, the commercial street property has been a dead loss. The Brigham Young Trust Company was organized by the heirs of Brigham Young, but the stock had been transferred to other parties, a number of whom have been opposing for some time the policy of those in control of the company in refusing to lease the buildings for immoral purposes. This agitation has resulted in a change of policy. Heretofore, all leases of the company have had a clause forbidding any building leased being used for immoral purposes. Now this clause will be stricken out and no questions asked of the leases as to the purpose of which the house will be put. Already the street is showing signs of activity and several leases have been made. End quote. I'm Wendy. This is Demolish Salt Lake and the story of queer history in Salt Lake City. Hello and welcome to episode nine. I have thrown out the usual format for this episode and instead invited my friends Connell O'Donovan and Randy Hoffman to join me to talk about historic sites that play an important role in the queer history of Salt Lake City. I gave you a hint about one of the sites in the article I quoted above. The stories Connell and Randy share are so interesting and might provide a new perspective for you about the city. This is the first episode in the Summer Road Trip series, and I hope you enjoy the tour we take around the city. Okay, here we go. Hello and welcome to episode nine. You're in for a very special episode today. I have a couple of friends here with me to talk about historic places that are important to the queer community here in Salt Lake. So let me introduce Connell and Randy. You guys want to say hi? Hi. Hello. <laughs> okay. So I met you guys a couple years ago. Yes. Um, we were working on a project with a previous employer of mine. And unfortunately, that project never got to fruition, which really bums me out. But I feel like this is kind of a way to bring that project to fruition so okay. that we can you know, <laughs> talk about these these places within Salt Lake. Very much related. Very much related. Absolutely. So the theme of the summer's podcast is road trip, but we're going to start here in Salt Lake. So okay. this is our first road trip. Awesome. So we're going to take a road trip around Salt Lake. Okay. Okay. So um, before- it, Are we in a convertible? Do you want to be? Yes. Okay. okay. Um, red, Going. blue. Red. Red convertible. So your hair can flow. Yes. <laughs> Vintage or new? Oh, vintage. Yeah. Like a 67 Mustang. Oh, with pony seats. Yeah. <laughs> now the we're scene talking. is set. Okay. All right. So imagine three of us with our sunglasses on driving down the road in a 67 red convertible Mustang with pony seats. Because that's really the only Mustang that matters. Yeah. And if you don't know what pony seats are, 
Go look that up. <laughs> okay, before we begin, um, I just kind of want to talk about um, some of the verbiage we're going to use. So we were just talking about queer history as opposed to LGBTQI plus history mm-hmm. um, or verbiage. So we're going to kind of use the queer history I think we went with, right? So, uh, or, or both. Or both, uh, either one. Just, yeah, or we could even go with lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, Queer questioning plus yeah. <laughs> so there's the a whole mouthful. <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot of ways. We have so options. We yeah. have options. Okay. All right. The the terms really are interchangeable. Um, it depends on who you ask, but queer will be used. Some people don't like to use it. I I sometimes identify as queer, um, and in my research and writing, I use queer kind of as an umbrella term for the whole long acronym. Um, but like you said, at some points in this, we'll say LGBTQ plus, or at some points we'll talk about stuff in the seventies and eighties and it was just lesbian and gay. And that's what some of the organizations were called. So it's all interchangeable and, uh, depends on the context. Okay. Great. And I wanted to just introduce myself as Connell, but my pronouns are he, him, his, but, and I'm a, I identify as a gay male. I'm just a wee bit bi, but not enough to really. I don't embrace that identity. I'm I'm erasing my bi identity, <laughs> and um, and I'm also just this past year or so non-binary. I'm I'm embracing being non-binary, so I'm on the transgender spectrum, and I kind of feel almost third gendered. Okay. Which is, and I, I can, yeah. Anyway, mm. I'm still exploring all that. That's awesome. Right, Randy, how do you identify? Yeah, Randy. Um, I very much relate to that. I just, you, yes, I'm a gay male, 100%. <laughs> um, but I, just the way society has defined and characterized male and female, I don't. I'm not one or the other. So I, I, I feel very much the same. This. Okay queer in between that I'm trying to figure out how to dress my body for and project into the world. Awesome. We're all on some sort of a path, aren't we? Yeah. Post-pandemic paths. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Yeah. That's a whole other podcast, right? Yeah. (laughs) Well, my pronouns are she and her. Okay. Good. So, but I I appreciate that you brought that up uh, because I think that's really important to know how to refer to people and how they're comfortable being referred to. Yeah. Yes. So perfect. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. You're very welcome. All right. Well, gentlemen, where's our first stop on our road trip? I have first on my list, 20 Rouge Jacob. Uh, well, we're on a road trip. Yes. <laughs> D- did we need to stop for coffee first? And <laughs> <laughs> a shot or two. No, I, I, I was just, I wasn't sure if we we're doing like chronological or geographical. Matter. Wherever or, you guys want to go. We're just random. We've got all the time in the world. We can drive, we all, can drive all, over all over the city. Yeah. Back. Okay. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Sure. 20 Rouge Cope. Okay. So. Um, oh, you're. you're oh, I guess you're handing over to talk me. to you about this. Well, so it, it didn't last very long. I think about 1982, um, they opened. A group, uh, I think it was a kind of a communal effort of women, and mostly lesbian identified, opened up uh, 20 Rouge Cove, which was a coffee shop 
uh, slash women's community resource center at, oh, I, uh, I have it at, it was 238 East 800 South. Right, which is now Moochie's. Moochie's. And it's, there are two buildings of Moochie's and it was the West building. Okay. Is where the little tan kind of off-white building, right? Well, no, they're yellow. Both are, aren't they both uh, yellow now? Oh, okay. <laughs> I, uh, anyway, I, um, so, uh, and it was a space that several community groups used, and they weren't all lesbian-specific, but most of them were. For example, there was a support group for lesbians called Women Aware, and they were kind of the mainstays of uh, this uh, business. Um, and I know, I, I kind of want to say that a woman named Abby Maestas was the main facilitator of the space there. Uh, other groups that used it were the Metropolitan Community Church, which was the first queer church, the Very first queer cool. cr- Christian church in the U.S. It, that started in Los Angeles, but there was a branch here nice. really, really early on. Um and then the Lesbian and Gay Student Union from the University of Utah, they would use it not, not as a meeting space, but as a social space. Oh, okay. Uh, there was a group for uh, lesbian mothers, they would get the support group for them. Uh, there was a support group for child abuse survivors. And then there was a group for lesbians who were over 30. And they eventually became another group, which was called Older, Wiser Lesbians. <laughs> Slash owls. I yeah. love it. <laughs> that was the acronym. <clears throat> and so they met there. They were using that space. It, w- it was not very financially stable. Oh. And they really struggled with that. It was a cooperative, right? Yeah. And if you couldn't afford their fees, they would still let you use it. And... Um, not a very good business plan. It wasn't a, a great business model. But <laughs> great intentions. Yes. Very, very amazing heart stuff. Was Absolutely. <laughs> which is awesome. And, um, and I, I, the women who talk about it, it's always addressed with reverence and <laughs> this intense love of finding space together. Um <sighs> Well, I think something like 20 Rouge Cove, it really reflects a lot of uh, the gay and lesbian, for lack of better words, gathering that was happening that was rooted in self-discovery, community making, but then also kind of a bit disestablishment, is that the word, Mm -hmm. Um, with like this co-op. Uh, system for the bookstore um and so i feel like it's really reflective of what was also being brought to salt lake these ideas these movements of uh gay and lesbian liberation non-conformity non-conformity yes well in in just a space because i mean as as we'll get into this there wasn't a lot of spaces available for people to gather there was bars there were but bars. Not everyone's comfortable going to a bar. They're mostly bars for gay men or bars where gay men went. Yeah. And that's also a theme that you see sometimes even through today, mostly through the 80s and 90s, of lesbians having to create their own spaces and kind of their own movement. So a, a safe place, a safe gathering spot. Right. Uh, I'm trying to think of what the origin of the name is. And, and it's... it's 
It's an address of a lesbian salon that took place in Paris in the 1920s. I think I read that. But I can't remember if it was, if HD ran it or if it was Gertrude Stein and and Alice B. Toklas or if it was Natalie Clifford Barney. I want to say it's Natalie Clifford, Clifford Barney's salon in Paris. But it was so it was some lesbian. <laughs> I love that idea, though, a lesbian salon. I totally yeah. go to that. I do, too. Just like thinkers and coffee. Yeah. And so when this and place closed, well, so what I, I, happened? Well, so they weren't doing financially well. So they, besides just being a kind of a coffee shop in a community space, then they tried adding books, selling books. Okay, so they tried so the So it became bookstore. a bookstore. Okay. And again, it just... It, it wasn't financially feasible, and so it closed down. June 1st, 1984 was the—and they were putting out a, a newsletter that was sort of the lesbian community newsletter, but it was women women-aware newsletter, mm-hmm. um, and that continued for a bit. Uh, and then the lesbian group for over 40s, which became OWLS, the older white—the <laughs> older wiser lesbians— they continued, and I and Owls actually lasted for many, many years. I was inducted as an honorary member into the Owls. <laughs> That's so. This is so special meaning was, to you. Yeah, I never. I mean, I I came out of the closet in '85, so I'm post Rouge Cobe. Okay. But and and then I wasn't really a, an activist or active in the community until like 1988. You know, a lot of my lesbian friends. Had, had all been involved in 20 Rujiko. And it, so it, the impact of it was far greater than that just little finite, you know, year and a half or two Absolutely. years that it was open. It had a profound influence on these women. So this, like, also brings up, and we're going to talk about this when we get to talking about the sun, mm-hmm. is that, you know, what, I mean, we think of, like having a community being displaced is like maybe, you know, uh, their their homes being torn down or something like that. We don't often think of a building, you know, or a business, a building being demolished or a business being closed, how that displaces a community. Yeah. But it sounds like this was a, something that happened for that, that group. Yeah. So that must have been yeah. pretty hard to then find a find a new safe spot. Well, something I was thinking about as we were driving over here, I'm a teacher, so I'm always looking for themes that are tying all these things together. And I was thinking about all of these places and what makes uh, queer physical spaces, queer architecture, the history, the culture of those places interesting is, you know, it was never quite like... uh, The first that comes to mind is like a Chinatown built by immigrants or... I grew up in the Bay Area with San Francisco's North Beach and stuff like that. Sure. We we didn't get to build our own stuff like that. Yeah. I say we. I was born in 93. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. And so the some of the places that we're looking at today um, in this episode were these are spaces that were occupied by queer people. They were places where gay or queer people organized and it had an impact. But to your point, they often didn't last. A lot of them didn't last. They're just a temporary home to someone um, or the organization turned into something else or it crumbled and disintegrated into five other (laughs) organizations. So it's kind of a a continual theme in, in 
the history of uh, LGBT uh, physical spaces, buildings. Let's talk about the sun since you. Yeah, let's talk about the sun because this is this is probably one that maybe more of the listeners would be more familiar with. Right. Spoilers. Well, <laughs> it no longer exists. <laughs> so, yeah. so when I came out in 85, that's all, which is a whole story. <laughs> um, I became a regular at the sun. That was the place to go. It was the funnest gay bar I've ever been to in my life. And I've been to many, including many in San Francisco and San Diego and LA um, and Phoenix um, but the sun, there's just a really special place in my heart for it. Amazing music, huge crowd. It was a huge space. There were just multiple rooms everywhere. And then a huge uh, outdoor fenced in patio with all kinds of tables and stuff like that. And it was just the place to be. And it was, you know, I felt very safe. There were a lot of straight people who went. Uh, you know, got to go slumming. <laughs> um, All right. So the address was, hold on, um, northwest corner of South Temple and 400 West. Oh, okay. That's 1.0. That's 1.0. Oh, and then it moved to 200 West and five, uh, 200 South and 500 five, West. Five, okay. So the one we're talking about is 200 South, 500 West. Right. Okay. Well, yeah, it, I was, I was, I was such an attention whore. I was always, they, they had these black, uh, go-go boxes, you know, scattered around the dance floor. I was always on one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I knew all the words to every song. So you had to lip sync to all the word, to all the songs and act out, you know, the, the lyrics as well. Oh, yes. In sync with everyone else. Oh, yes. <laughs> you had, and a, you had I a, was a choreographed just, dance that you did yes, to it? Yes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm gesturing. <laughs> <laughs> Microphone's on. Yeah. <laughs> So it was just, it was a blast, you know, and I'm not much of a drinker, so I never, never really got into the alcohol aspect of it. I would go for the music and, and dancing and hanging out with my friends. Yeah. Well, in talking these, these conversations that we had like a couple of years ago, talking about the sun, it, again, you were talking about this reverence, right? Yeah. Like it was your church, <laughs> right? Yeah. This is where you went to find your people. Yes. Now, there were other bars that existed during this time. There were a lot of gay bars and, like, two or three lesbian bars by this time as well. Deer Hunter is one that comes to mind. Deer Hunter, Puss in Boots was the the big lesbian bar. Yeah. Which I went to fairly frequently. I always felt really comfortable there. There there was one time when I was just like, "Mm, I'm not sure if I'm really super welcome. (laughs) But... but, there's a, there was the deer hunter, and there was the trap, um, and there was the one that was on State Street. There was the Radio City, the Radio music City Lounge. That was it, uh-huh. which was kind of had been a swanky piano bar, beginning in the forties. Yeah, I have the Crystal Lounge. Well, that's earlier too. Tin Angel. That's sixties. Yeah. So, what made the sun? So special. Like, what made this, like, the place? Great staff, amazing DJ, and the perfect location. It was close enough to downtown. You know, it was, you could walk there from any restaurant or whatever. Okay. But it was also in the seedy industrial (laughs) portion. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It could be a little unsafe. That was, that was a problem. 
as far as like gay bashings and things like that. Yes. Some robberies, muggings and stuff yeah. like that. And yeah. Yeah. Did you ever go? I did not. I was oh. I was uh, not of age quite yet. Oh, you're a young pup. Oh, <laughs> not that young. <laughs> Whenever I've had one of the greatest things I've been able to do in the last few years is develop relationships and hear stories like this from my queer elders. You know, I didn't get to experience this. And something that fascinates me, which has brought me into queer history, is just this a community building that happened that my queer generation really doesn't have. And so for various reasons. Um, And so I always hear uh, local queer elders talking about just this absolute reverence, like you said, for the sun. And I like my brain tries to like transport itself back to there and just like imagine like what it must have been like and how magical it must have been like. I've, I think every gay man, every queer person has had that experience of recently coming out and like, well, oh, I hit the cord. Now I'm gonna go out to because I'm gesturing and the <laughs> microphone's not picking up gestures. You're, you're, you're too fabulous <laughs> yeah. for this small space. Um, Should have recorded this. So you can see all the fantastic yeah. gestures. <laughs> um, Uh, I'm sure every queer person has experienced that, you know, I've recently come out, going to hit the bar. Um, I did that when I, and I, my first bar was the sun trap. Um, And it is this liberating experience where you, you can finally meet your people and you can be yourself. Um, And so I can only imagine what that would have been like at the sun to, to experience that. Absolutely. I think that too, like, like, what that felt like to have a place where you felt like you belonged. Yeah. Where, where you were able to finally be your authentic self and who you wanted to be. In 1980s, Salt in Lake City, Utah. Absolutely. Just the, the 80s in general in Utah yeah. were, or Salt Lake <laughs> were amazing. Yeah. The underground scene was the shit. Mm. I was like, <laughs> there was so much going on artistic, artistically. And that, and within the queer scene and everything, but the, so there were all these, you know, spoken word poetry places you could go, and there were all these um, uh, alternative film places, you know, like the Blue Mouse oh, and the, the Tower Mouse. Theater. Yep. Uh, and there was another theater that I, the name escapes me. There were performance art pieces. That you know, the the queer community was doing a lot of that. Like there were these. A uh, young performance artist, uh, Curtis York, and the other guy's name was Gumby, and I can't remember his <laughs> his muggle name. Uh, but they had a show called Meet the Mormons, and they would do these performance art pieces about being queer and Mormon. And hundreds of people would come and see them do these <laughs> crazy things that, awesome. that were just like... Well, there, you know, the punk scene was going on, yep. the, the goth scene, yep. new wave, all this... Amazing alternative music. Yeah. I, I am from just, the new wave generation. Okay. I will, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes. So um, when we were talking about this, you also talked about like the sun being one of the problems of not saving queer history in Salt Lake. Yeah. So I think it was in 99, wasn't the big tornado? Big tornado. Yeah. 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 If you don't know about that. <laughs> Yeah. Big tornado came through Salt Lake in August, um, of, August of eight, August of ninety nine, and killed a per- one person. Yep, and destroyed hit, hit the Salt Palace, hit the sun, destroyed the sun, 
And so that was the end of the sun. That was the end of the sun. Yeah. And that was the end of all of this, like, generations of of people having yeah. these experiences yeah. at this yeah. one so spot. So Joe Redburn, who had owned both 1.0 and 2.0, you know, he was getting older and he was just tired and was like, I think it's just a sign from God that I'm just take the insurance money and run. <laughs> Well, then the whole block got demolished anyway, so. Right. Yeah. 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 So, again, we're talking about the displacement of a community. Yeah. Yeah. Again, yeah. And nothing has really replaced it. Like, there's... The sun trap is not the same. The vibe might be the same, but just the community is not. The heyday of... No. I I feel like... It's not a dance club. It's not. The sun was primarily a dance club. Yeah. I I feel like the heyday was uh, the sun, and it just kind of maybe not to critique our modern bars. I'm thankful that they're around, but I I think it's gone a little down since then. Well, and the internet has a lot to do with that as well. It, yes, absolutely. A lot more um, options to yeah yeah to me to, to meet me. other people and where in the eighties. That was your only place to hold hands, and now we can hold hands at other places. Yeah. Right. All right. So we're gonna leave the sun, and where are we headed to? Um, I kind of wanted to combine Memory Grove, and we wanted to um also talk about Washington Square. Yes. I thought that would we could connect those pretty well. A uh, friend shared this uh, page from the 1996 Pride Guide, um, and it went through just very quickly uh, some of the history of Pride, just how it actually started. Um, So there were a lot of other events that happened previously to the march that Connell organized. Um, Yeah, the the festival has been going on for a couple decades before I came along. Yeah, I think the festival aspect. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. The festival part of it, since... The early 70s, so probably, I would say since maybe the early 70s, the ones that we can kind of document and say definitively happen were like 75 and on, and they would take place. So some of the ones I have here in this article, um, the first one that they have listed, um, July 1975, um, Issue of the Salt Lake City Gazette announced the Gays of 47 and Pioneer Picnic, a social event sponsored by the Gay Community Services Center. The party in Mill Creek Canyon offered kegs O-beer. Oh, apostrophe. (laughs) O-beer. Refreshments, uh, a picnic basket auction, bake sale and crafts. Um, And then there was a Memorial Day kegger in City Creek Canyon. Um, and City Creek Canyon or Memorial Grove was often used as a cruising site. Um, you know, if we're talking about the built environment like you do on your podcast, um, oftentimes, especially like 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, gay men weren't, they, how do I articulate that? The only place that they could be themselves were places that weren't really places. Absolutely. Like Memorial, uh, Memory Grove. So you could go into a place like that um, and not be worried about people being around you, judging you. Um, And so it became a cruising site, but I don't want that to also slander, demean what was happening there because this was also people 
experimenting. This was people meeting others who were like them and finding themselves, developing friendships or relationships. It wasn't just a hookup in the dark woods. Absolutely. We're not. Yeah, not we're not talking debauchery, you know, yeah. always there was. I mean, there was there some, was, I'm but sure. it wasn't just that. I'm sure, but, but, you know. So if you went to Memory Grove on any Saturday or Sunday afternoon about 2, 3 o'clock in the summer, when it was warmer, there would be easily 200 gay men sunning on the on the banks of the no creek way. and all, you know, yeah. on that big grass area. Yeah, yeah. That whole thing would be gay men hanging out, playing frisbee, yapping, you know, just a little it was, gay utopia. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I like that. I like gay utopia. I like that. And then the bushes would be rustling <laughs> up the hill, you know. Your friend would disappear for a few minutes and quietly yep. come back. And, but again, but, we're talking, there wasn't, uh, there wasn't other places. Like, yeah. there, there wasn't the built environment other places. Yeah, so. right. I mean, there was Jeff's gym, but ooh. But so I think that's always something really interesting to to share with people. That's part of our our LGBT uh, landscape here in in Salt Lake City. Um, it's a sexual geography. You know, mm-hmm. Yeah, and those places matter. I they, mean, that's yes. absolutely. Yeah, they matter just as much as any other place. Yeah, you know the the straight sexual geography was State Street. Cruise state. Cruising, dragging yeah. state. Mm. Yep, used to drag state. Mm-hmm. I, uh, dragging state, yep. fr- Friday, Friday. <laughs> fr- Friday and Saturday night. My dudes, I used to get dressed up. I would take a shower. I would do my hair and makeup, put on some fancy clothes to go drive up and down State Street for four hours in, in your, a car. In your 67 in convertible. My, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, full circle. <laughs> Didn't ever get out of the car. No, no. Just drove up and down the street. (laughs) For hours. Hours. Going down to about 45th South, sometimes just 33rd, flipping a U. Flip around. Go up to the Capitol, flip a U. (laughs) So there are a lot of these events going on throughout the summers um, in Memory Grove, City Creek Canyon. Um, And it wasn't until about late 70s, early 80s, so right before you came out, that this started to turn into Pride events? Is that Would you say that? Like Queer Liberation Day, Christopher Street Day? And that was the early 70s early that it 70s. started there at the, in, in Memory Grove. Okay. For like three or four, five years. Mm-hmm. And then it moved to, started moving to different parks around town. Yeah. Um, the, the Pride Festival. Okay. So what we know is the Pride Festival today grew out of... These grassroots keggers, 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 <laughs> keggers. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and well, they and would, they would, they would it's have all a bar- got to start somewhere, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a barbecue picnic, and and they would have speakers and stuff. But there was, it was a kegger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At one point, it was in Fairmont Park. Um, but then, as you get later into the '80s, and that's where I kind of wanted to turn it to Connell and transition to Washington Square shine the spotlight on you <laughs> um, because I see all these just kind of summer gatherings, Memorial Day, Pioneer Day, barbecue kegger gatherings that are somewhat related to queer liberation, uh, Stonewall uh, and Christopher Street because then you organize more of a political side of it. Well, that was in 1990. Yeah. I mean, there was, so, I mean, throughout the 80s, 
there were designated, you know, gay pride events. At, I remember like those. at Murray Park. Yeah. And, yeah, the uh, governor was invited uh, a couple times and never showed up. Yeah. And, <laughs> and Pioneer Park and things like that. But, um, and then there, there used to be an organization called Gay and Lesbian Community Council. So every, every bar, every support group, every organization queer related in town could send two, they had three votes per organization that would attend community council. It was sort of, we, we, we jokingly called it the gay Senate because it was this democratic, sure, <laughs> you sure. know, everybody got a vote and, uh, you know, resolutions were passed and things got done. Um, and I, one year I was put in charge of, I can't remember even what committee it was. It wasn't. You told me once and now I can't remember. It was like public education committee or something <laughs> like that. And I was like, I get to organize a march. I'm doing it. <laughs> and so I proposed that, you know, this was in 1990. I proposed that we hold a march for on on Stonewall Day, which is June 27th or 28th. It depends on which day you go with. Um, uh, instead of. Because the festivals, the gay pride festivals were always like in March or September. <laughs> At one know, point it was in July. July. <laughs> so you could go to other cities. Yeah, it was oh, it, it was so it wouldn't overlap with the big pride so events. So you could go to like San Francisco, San Francisco yeah. or New, New York. And, to New York. So. Right. Okay. And uh, I was like, damn it, we should celebrate Stonewall Day here. We need our own. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and... And we should have a march and not just this super cute, fun. And they were fun, super fun festivals. Um, and bunch of blowback against that. Don't don't rock the boat. Are you going to let drag queens be seen in public? Mm. Are, you know, and it just it was really bad. And that first year, we, did, we didn't go to Washington Square. Um, the brow was from the Capitol building to, to next to the symphony hall. Okay. There, it was an art, the art center space there. Sure. Um, and, but at the, the South gate of the temple where we marched by is where they, they had the horse carriages for the tourists. So here comes 250 screaming <laughs> homosexuals <laughs> with their signs and everything. And the horses freaked out. But, you know, I had I had gotten our permit and had passed everything. I'd resubmitted the route to the police, and they are like, yes, do it. And then we – so we started approaching, and the cops were like, oh, my gosh. What did we do? Whoops. And they were like, push everybody to the south sidewalk, you know, get them, get them as far away from the horses. And they're all spooked and bucking and stuff. And it was kind of scary. And I bet we, we got people to kind of calm down and get past them. But the cops then said – you can't do this route again next year. You got to do a different route. <laughs> so the next route, I was like, you know what? Let's just go down State Street, and we'll end at Washington Square. So in 1991, on June 27th, Friday night, we ended our march there. Well, so <laughs> we, you know, I again, I paid for all these permits and gotten permission. Which is not inexpensive. And it was not inexpensive. 
Um, but you know, the, I would say the city, thank you very much, paid for our insurance. They or they waived the insurance. Oh wow, that's huge. Yeah, yeah. So I just had to pay for the permits, and it was, you know, less than a hundred and fifty dollars total. But, um, but I had my permit in hand, and we get to Washington Square, and neo Nazis from Aryan Nations have occupied the space where we had our permit for. Oh. So they're in front of City Hall by the flagpoles. No, on the east side. No, or those are in the west side. Knowing that you guys were going to oh, be there. Yes, yeah. Okay. You know where the the drive the loop yes. the drive loop is. So on the yeah. east side of uh, yeah, but they were up on the steps of okay. City Hall. Yeah, waving their Nazi flags and uh, chanting the Kyle, kill the fags, fags die from AIDS, fun things like that. Yeah. yeah. And here I am with my little bullhorn <laughs> going, oh, shit. I, I take my permit and go over to the, you know, the, the, the lead police officer and say, this is my permit for that space. I paid money for that. And he goes, they got there first. And I said, do they have a permit? And did they pay for it? Well, it doesn't matter. Freedom of assembly. Oh and I was gosh. like, so I didn't need to pay for the permit. Yeah. <laughs> I was so angry. Yeah. But... So we had, we had people go up to them, right to the bottom of the steps, and then turn away from them and face, face me and the other speakers with the bullhorn. And, so, and we just kept, you know, talking. That's and, scary. Yeah. It, it was, I was terrified because I, I thought, if one of them has a gun, yeah. they're going to shoot the guy with the bullhorn. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know. Yikes. I, but, you know, we got through it. And and every year it just grew from there? Well, then I moved away, so I don't know about oh. it. <laughs> oh, that's right. You lived in California for... 20, 20 years. Yeah. 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 But that was the first time that Washington Square was used. Was as, used. As a queer space. And it's still there today. Yeah. You know? Because that's where pride. Yeah. It's not just a, a convenient place for a festival. Although it kind of is, um, I, it has meaning. It has meaning, um, and I think tradition. when tradition, <laughs> exactly. Um, we need a queer version of that of that play. Yeah. Um, so that was a distraction, um, and that's kind of been my message. You know, every year I take something away from Pride, and that's been kind of my message. Is um, there's all this talk about. Uh, Stone or Pride started with Stonewall. Uh, Pride started as a riot, which is absolutely correct. And it's the same here in Salt Lake. It wasn't always just a cute festival. Sometimes it was, but there's also a, a queer liberation agenda, a homosexual agenda, uh, and very important issues to Pride. It's not just a festival at the city and county building, right? We're trying to make the world better, and there's a message, there's an agenda with that. Right. Absolutely. We were doing, and I want it to be a march, not a parade. Yeah. Because, you know, it was angry, scared, and defiant. Mm-hmm. That, Absolutely. That was, you know, the, <clears throat> the, the, those were the motivating factors in there. It, it wasn't, oh, let's celebrate. How cute I look in a speedo, yeah, which is awesome, <laughs> which is great. But that's not where where we were at as a community at that time. Yeah. No, yeah, and it was it was 
really meaningful to be able to, you know, walk defiantly down the state, down State Street. Like you set an example for the community to see what can be done when you are angry and scared. Yeah. Mm hmm. And defiant, and you want change. You've, you've hit your limit. Yeah. And it's yeah. just like, I have nothing to lose anymore. <laughs> yeah. And look is, what grew out of it. Yeah. I mean, look what you did. Yeah. Yeah. You throw that little pebble into the pond, and right. you never know what the repercussions are going to be mm-hmm. as it spreads out. Yeah. I love it. And I like, Randy, how you talked about, like, you learn something from it every year. I mean, mm-hmm. you know. Being a, a queer individual, yeah. you know, that that you're still learning about. Yeah, stuff like how that. to be in my community and who I am. and I think that's probably something almost everybody could relate to. Yeah. All right. Where are we going to next? <clears throat> um, Can we talk about the boarding house? Sure. I, mean, I feel like I'm dominating the conversation <laughs> here. <laughs> I was going to talk a lot about Regent Street. Let's do Regent Street. All right, let's let's talk about Regent Street. Um, So Regent Street, Plum Alley. um, Today you have uh, Commercial Street. Um, The so Regent Street has been kind of gentrified, and you can go check it out. All the restaurants there by City Creek, Mm -hmm. and then Plum Alley. For some reason, it's still there. (laughs) It's under a parking garage. Yep. And there's like a ramp on it, and then the parking garage is over the rest of it, and then it kind of like dead ends halfway so through the block. So we're talking about um, Second South between yes. State Street and Main on the <clears throat> north side of the road. Yes. Yes. So there's an empty lot between these two streets right now. There used to be a in and out. No, not an in and out burger. There used to be a burger place there. Like a Sprockets or a yeah. yes. 50s, 50s diner-ish <laughs> hamburger place. But. And... Just because you all know how I love connecting all my podcast stories together. <laughs> um, this was the place that Maritz, uh, Jacob Maritz wanted to build a new hotel or new business center. So Jacob Maritz was the owner of the Salt Lake City Brewery. Okay. And he Is had he bought- Nemo? Yes, he's uh, Emo. Emo, not Nemo. Emo. <laughs> so he, he bought land right between these two streets. And unfortunately, okay. he passed away before he was able to... Uh, to build his building there, but have you hung out at Emo's grave at midnight on Friday nights? You know, walking around it three times saying oh. Emo, Emo, Emo. <laughs> have you done that? <laughs> I, I may have. I also may have just ran through the cemetery and had the cops chase me. But I, I, I <laughs> so, love I love to connect my stories. So there we go. Jacob so that's Moritz. okay. That's the, that's the place we're talking about. So go ahead, Randy. Um, so early Utah, so eighteen seventies, eighties, nineties. This is. Um, part uh, Chinatown. Um, this is also the part of town where a lot of the brothels are, um, and the boarding houses, yes. which are some kind, sometimes kind of the same thing. They are. Um, the Felt Electric Building that actually still exists there. Okay. It was a um, a house of ill repute. Yes, another great term. Yes, <laughs> I did not know that. I'll have to go check that out. Um, so. Something I did, I kind of have gone through some of these early crimes um, and uh, early sex crimes, early sex crimes. Yes. Okay. To be specific um, under the sodomy laws. Um, and so a lot of 
there was prostitution happening here. It wasn't until later, like almost the 1900s, early 1900s, that you start seeing uh, male prostitution. They didn't call it that. Um, I have one person arrested in 87. They did call that um, prostitution at the Great Western Hotel. Wasn't able to get the address of that, but it was downtown. Um, But then... The first one that I have on Commercial Street was 1890 uh, in the spring. Um, And they were arrested, um, like I said, on Commercial Street for essentially prostitution. They were seen, he was seen with another man on the ground participating in. (laughs) Writhing around. (laughs) Writhing around. I'll leave it at that. It was very obvious what they were doing. Participating in um, exercise. Yes. <laughs> Weren't a lot of the male prostitutes arrested for loitering? Was yeah, that, that so was I was, was going to oh, okay. also say that there was um, a term that you'll mostly see. So it's loitering, and then um, the other term is vagrancy. Oh, right. Oh, okay. um, they, I, I saw loitering a couple times. Um, yeah, so a lot of that was in Salt Lake. And then on our drive down, we were talking about Park City and just some of the mostly male homosexual history and culture that was left behind there. Um, and there were, it was a mining town, so there were brothels. Absolutely. Um, and there were several male uh, prostitutes. A lot of the ones arrested up there, they said in the police records that they were inmates of a house of ill repute or an inmate of a, a brothel. Uh, mm. I don't know why they couldn't call them prostitutes maybe that was just such a feminized it probably idea was only yeah and so they um didn't know what to call these men and they're often very young between 17 and 24 interesting um but um that whole kind of middle of the block there that's been gentrified or there's a parking garage there yeah. um how's this like rooted history and i i view a lot of this as kind of Part of, not the sole root of early Utah queer history, but part of what was happening in Utah. Um, Because looking through the records and some of, um, not not just church history, but Utah history related to the church, um, a lot of the Mormons in Salt Lake would turn a blind eye um, to what was happening in the brothels and the boarding houses as long as it stayed on those streets. Yes. It was the same with Swede Town, which is now Marmalade. As long as the Swedes and Norwegians stay there, as long as the Chinese stay in Chinatown, then we won't have problems. Oh, I, I thought Swede Town was across the street from the well, back street and it further was, north. Like, yeah, it was like, further away. Okay. But just the same idea that okay. as long as these non-WASP people stay where they're supposed to stay, then we don't have an issue. So they were able to kind of turn a blind eye and per our conversation before we started the podcast about the church owning some of these buildings that rented uh, and ran a brothel, um, they were able to kind of, well, they weren't able to, they did turn a blind eye Absolutely. To what was going on in those buildings that not, eventually not changed. Not the church, the Brigham Young Holding Company. <laughs> I mean, it's Correct. Which was the church. Correct. <laughs> it was the same thing with, you know, in, in doing my research with like breweries and, um, you yeah. know, and bars and saloons. There was always a bar and saloon in all the church-owned hotels. Yep. Yeah. You know, it, it was that 
you know, not, don't do this. This isn't for you, but we're still going to have it. We're but just going to make money you. off of we're it. We're going to make money off yeah. of it. So it does not surprise me in the least that they would sanction yeah. this in their buildings. And it wasn't until about the 19-teens, 20s that um, I don't remember who was president of the church then, but they started going back on that and got rid of all of those leases and sold those buildings and... And opened the crypts on, I think on Second South. Yeah, and they they were eventually, which is where the sun ended up being. Yeah, I think that was kind of why they were pushed over there, yeah. which is where a lot of the African Americans and Asians lived. Right, and so it just became this part of town where all the filth was pushed. Absolutely, yes, and you know um, what, like what is now Pioneer Park and um, all of that yeah. you know, industrial yeah. area. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, those were the places that no one. You know, wanted to live. They wanted to live in the, the the nice yeah. parts of town. So you know, they wanted to live in the wards that were on the east side. Yes, or, ward know, they, shopping. Yeah, they <laughs> did not want to live on the you know the the west side wards were what was left over after yes. everyone else chose their land in other yeah. places. So yes, red light district. Yeah. Oh, I totally forgot about the Keystone. I have that here. <laughs> um, that's kind of like one of the favorite stories. Um, James Hamilton and William D. Burton, it was spring of 1891, um, and they were caught behind the Keystone Saloon on Commercial Street. They had met in the, in the saloon. In the saloon. Okay. And there was a back door opening to this back alley. So they alley. took their business yeah. out in the alley. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and they were both caught and arrested. Um, and the information I have here, so the first trial um, lasted five hours. The Mormon jury, so it was an all-Mormon jury, uh, could not agree on a verdict, and the case was dismissed. That's surprising. Yeah. Um, and then the second case, after five but minutes... The, the defendant was a Mormon, I think, and that I think that played a role in... Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think that's why they couldn't make a decision. And so there was a second case, and then after five minutes, the jury acquitted only James Hamilton, who I believe was the non-Mormon. And then... Oh. Um, the other man, William Burton. He was Mormon. I know yeah. that. Yeah, that's true. Which was very indicative or well, very common um, because at this time, relations between the state and the federal government are rocky. No one likes Mormons. So if they can show on paper, uh, no, it's our people are good. Yeah. It's, it's all these other ones that have come into the state that are roughing things up and not following the rules. Yes, because what, what year was this again? This was 1891. Oh, yeah. So we're, we're right in the middle of prosecuting everyone possible for polygamy. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. So yeah. we... Cohabitation. I'm co oh, sorry. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, that's really interesting that they would um, acquit the non-Mormon but make an example. It was, that was very common. There are many other sodomy cases where the LDS men were given very lenient sentences or nothing at all. And the other ones were sent off to the penitentiary or whatever. I love that story about, cause you just, you only like, when you think of prostitution, you think of a red light district. I mean, you really only think of like the women, Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, but of course it was, I, it was mostly women, but from what I could tell, it seemed like there was a fair share of young men. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, no other place to go, and in a, no. the wrong time period as yeah. well. <laughs> yeah. All right, so. Are we going to the boarding house? Uh, okay. 
I love this. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Like this is, I, I actually did some digging on this one because oh, this was just fascinating to yeah. me. So we're going to, um, I wrote down the address. So we're going to. 615 East, 900 South. All right. Across the street north of Liberty Park. And this place is still there. Please yeah. don't bother the people that live there. <laughs> yes. Like I did <laughs> in 1988. Were they kind? Uh, there was nobody home. Oh, bummer. But next door lived Jan McKenzie, who was in her 80s. Oh. And she had lived in her house her entire life. <gasps> and she knew all the women. Oh, she wow. She had stories. And she had stories. Oh, my gosh. That's stories awesome. and stories. And she loved those women. And Jan never married either. And I often, I wanted to ask her, so, <laughs> <laughs> are you Lesbeterian by yeah. chance? <laughs> I didn't ever, but um, so in the 1920s, there was a woman named Edith Chapman, Dr. Edith Chapman. She was a, t a teacher of education at the University of Utah. She, her parents died and she inherited their house there and she opened and she was a lesbian and she opened up her home as a boarding house for other lesbians. Um, and the women, well, she hired Carlene Monson as her cook for the, the place Carlene Monson is Thomas S. Monson's favorite aunt. Oh, wow. And he has given talks about Uncle Elias and Aunt Carlene uh, as being his two favorite family members. Uh -huh. He's given conference. I mean, he talks oh, wow. about them in conference. And I don't, I don't think Elias married either, but Carlene, didn't, I know she didn't marry. And um, some of the other women that lived in this boarding house were Mildred Berriman, who was Edith's lover for quite a while. And then Dorothy Graham, who uh, she was the manager of Coon Chicken Inn, which was a horribly racist but extremely popular chicken restaurant on Highland Drive. Yes, yeah. go 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 Google that. Just be prepared, people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Coon yeah. Chicken Inn. Any, but. Um, and, and Dorothy actually would sponsor drag shows at Coon Chicken Inn because they had this really swanky dining room and kind of a cabaret yeah. setup. And so Ray Bourbon, who was a famous female impersonator uh, and, and out gay man, who he had this review called Boys Will Be Girls. <laughs> and he, he brought them to the Coon Chicken Inn in, in this time period that we're talking about. And... Things like that. Uh, so, and then there was Grace Nickerson and Ethel Stewart. So there were, I think it was Edith and Carlene had two bedrooms, and then there were two other bedrooms that were open. Because it's not a, not a big house. No, no. It's kind of a small yeah. the craftsman. Or it, craftsman. It's craftsman. Yeah, that's who we know <laughs> lived there. I'm so sorry, the many people that live there, those are the... Right. And then in the late 30s, uh, Edith decided that she didn't want to live in Salt Lake anymore, and she wanted to be more open. So she moved to Berkeley. Oh, okay. And lived in in Berkeley. She, she met another lover, and they were together for the rest of her life until the 1950s. So she sold her house, and that She's, was... Oh, she gave her house to Carlene. Oh, okay. I was going to say that was the end of the boarding house, or did that, she continue that, it? I don't, you know, I don't know. That's oh, a really good question. Bummer. I wonder how we could find out. The 1950 census hasn't been released yet, yeah. so I don't. But and I don't know how long Carlene died. She was older, 
So she may not have lived very long, but yeah, I haven't actually tried that. That's a good. But still, Again, you're gonna. You've prompted me to do some more okay. research on what happened to the house. Dig, after digging on that. Let, let me know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But providing this in the 20s, again, you know, yeah. this fantastic safe spot for women. Yeah. And I picture, from what I've gathered of 1910s and 20s Salt Lake LGBT uh, culture, uh, there was a very strong, I mean, think about 1920s America. There's a very strong underground ex-Mormon queer uh, network. And so I picture a house like this. I mean, we all know the house w with all the gays. <laughs> <laughs> That's the place to be. Yes. Yeah. So I picture a place like that potentially being a, an extremely safe place for this group of people who cannot be out uh, at work or in public. And so they can come and feel safe. Yeah, feel safe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is just seems to be kind of a recurring theme in this this whole conversation. Yeah, finding right? safety, finding community, finding community and safety, and it's very yeah. queer. being your authentic self. And, and we know about uh, some of this because of Mildred Berriman, who was Edith's lover. Uh, Mildred ha had gone to Westminster and had been kicked out because she came out of the closet. She had asked to do a study on the lesbian community in Salt Lake City. And Westminster said no. <laughs> and oh, wow. not only that, but when word got out and word did get out that there was a lesbian living in the dorms, um, a bunch of parents contacted the school and said, kick her out or I'm taking my daughter out, you know, because... They recruit, of course. Yep. You know, it rubs off. And, and it's contagious. <laughs> it's part of our agenda. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so they they kicked her out. But she was still on her own. Did uh, And she, she tried to get it published. It's called A Psychological Study of Homosexuality, I think is the title. I think that's what it's called. Yeah. And through she, the University of Utah. Right? No, it was through Temple University, which oh, okay. was a which was a That's diploma funny. mill. <laughs> she <laughs> yeah. got it. She did get it published, but through a diploma mill, um, and she took like twenty five lesbians and ten gay men that she knew, and interviewed them periodically, and kind of got a psychological makeup of all these people. And one of them was Edith, and then you know, and you could tell. Probably, I, I think I know which one is Dorothy, you know. Because they were all just numbered. They had, right, yeah, it yes. was case study A. Or a, a, case good, study. a good thesis, yeah, Yeah. gives it aliases, yeah. Right. <laughs> I, I have a copy, You and you have a copy too, mm -hmm. don't you, of, all, yeah. of the whole study. Yeah. Um, that was preserved by her family, her whole study. And Fantastic. The, and the, the lesbian archives in Los Angeles, the Jim yeah. Mazur collection has the, the original. Such a but, progressive thing for that time, right? Very it's a extremely, yeah. That whole story. Yeah. <laughs> I love that whole story. All right, so I think we've got one more stop. Yes, the Salt Lake Theater. Ah. Oh. Which you've been doing a lot of talking, but this is yours. <laughs> this, is, this is great, people. We're, I we're, forgot to. We're heading to the Utah Pantages Theater. No, that, this is the Salt Lake Theater. Oh, this is the Salt the Lake Theater. The Pantages is on Main Street. Yes. 
the Salt Lake Theater is on State Street. Oh, and I was be, at the became, wrong theater. And became Promise Valley Playhouse. Okay. Okay. Do you know which, you know which theater I know which is. About? It's now... Um, well, it's church offices. Is it? They kept the facade. The facade's there. like And, and ripped out the, the, part, the theater part and just put in modern offices. People, keeping then, facades is not historic preservation. It's not. No. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> so we're, we're on we're State Street between 2nd South and 1st South on the west side, Right. Um, and yes, it looks like a theater still from the outside. Yeah, it does look like a, a theater. A very grand, elegant theater. Yes. Outside. Okay. Yes. Sorry. I, I, 100 for, State Street. For some reason, I thought we were at the Pantages, but all yeah. right. I'm backing up. Yeah. We're, we're throwing <laughs> reverse. We're going around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> well, so drag queens did perform at the Pantages, but the vast majority performed at the Solic Theater. So I just finished doing a massive study on female impersonation in Utah from 1871 to 1931. Did I say that right? It's 1871 to 1931. Yeah. Numbers. And over 100 drag queens performed on Utah stages all over the state in that, you know, uh, 30, 60-year period. So incredible. <laughs> and it was a huge part of the vaudeville circuit. Absolutely. Almost every vaudeville act had a female impersonator in it. And originally it started out as being really um, like mocking of women. Really over the top. Well, super sexist. And starting about in the late 1880s, men started to try to actually impersonate women, like to pass as women with both what they wore and singing. Okay. Uh, so a lot of them took opera classes and things like that and were singing in soprano falsetto wow. for, for audiences. And we're trying, the, the purpose was to try to fool the audience and not let them know that they were that, actually... That they were men in drag. Well, wasn't think, a law passed that they had to make it clear that this was an act. I cannot find any municipal oh, okay. code in Salt Lake for Salt Lake City. Okay, it's city to city about cross-dressing or or anti-cross-dressing codes. Very city to city. I know Provo had one, but I I went through all of the Salt Lake municipal codes, and there is no prohibition against it. Interesting. Um, but. Uh, so the, the the you know they would do this performance, and then you know during the standing ovation, hopefully that you got, you would doff your wig and go show show your true identity. <laughs> yeah. And then that would bring down the house totally, you know. Uh, it, it, but yeah, so uh, the, I, I, and of the hundred, about. 75 were national acts, but about 25 of these female impersonators were acts that were from local folks. And, you know, some of them were heterosexual men. Mm -hmm. I would say most of them were actually heterosexual men that, for whom this was just a job. Um, and this was for heterosexual audiences. You yeah. know. Yes. This isn't RuPaul's Drag Race. It's not RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> this is not, you know, Royal Court of the yeah. Golden Spike Empire <laughs> coronation <laughs> for the queer community. 
This is straight men <laughs> impersonating women for straight audiences for the most part. But so there were a number of gay men who did it. Um, and I, and probably what we would call now transgender women sure. who, who participated. Uh, and I, we can surmise that because then they would get caught remaining in drag after the show and go down to Provo, <laughs> show up at a saloon. I'm speaking of one in particular who, who went down to Provo in drag and trying to hook up with men and got arrested <laughs> and for, for cross-dressing. Oh, wow. In, in Provo, yeah. Now, we, we know who some of these people are. That, oh, I know that all their names. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think some of the audience would be, the listeners would be surprised to hear <laughs> who some of these Oh, a couple of them. People Let's see. are. Hmm. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Evan Stevens, who was the director of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, he performed in drag at, at least three times. Once was in the Mormon Tabernacle downtown. And he also performed at the Malad Idaho Stake Tabernacle in drag once. And he had a male partner. He had many male partners. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I actually just um I I had posted about him last June and I just reposted. So if you want to read more about Evan Stevens, go to my uh, Instagram account. And then the other really famous one is, of course, Madame Paterini. <laughs> whose uh, muggle name is Brigham Morris Young. He was the son of the Brigham Young. Yes. And um, he, the one photo, we have a, an amazing photo taken by the famous photographer Charles E. Savage uh, of Madame Paterini in full drag. And I think she's gorgeous. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like I would look at that and not go, that's a guy in drag. I, I agree. <laughs> I, I can almost always tell men in drag. Yeah. If you, if, if I didn't know and you hadn't told me, yeah. uh, you, you wouldn't, that's definitely like a gorgeous woman. Right. But he sang in, in soprano also. And then he would do the same thing. Oh, the, and that, that and one she made image. Great gin. Yes. <laughs> I'm kidding. She didn't make it. Can we, can we put in a plug for it? Please do, because this is awesome. Okay, so Ogden's own distillery makes a Pat Madame Paterini gin with her image on it, and they just came out with a gin and tonic in, the, in a yeah. can with her image on it. So. Shop local people. Go hit them up, because it is cool. Find some Madame Paterini yep. and have a good time. So that, oh, back, to, to that, back to that image. We have that yes. one photograph. It's, it's a large placard that was to advertise his performance at the Sugar House Ward oh. in about 1901-1902. Okay. Yeah. And I'll, I'll post that picture up on, on uh, my socials because yeah. it's, it's great. It's, it's great. It's such a great image. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I love that she's becoming part of the kind of pop underground yeah. in yeah. Utah culture. Back in the narrative. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know. Again, just surprising historic facts from, you know, Utah that not a lot of people were aware of. Mm. Utah is a pretty queer state. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, and that's what I love about all these stories is realizing, I think about uh, young adults and teenagers hearing these stories. You've always been here. We've been here before it was settled. We've been here while it was settled. We're still here. These stories are real, um, and they're they're powerful. 
Yes. Yeah. And and what I love especially is connecting them to buildings, to physical spaces, especially the ones that are still here. I agree. Yes. And that's one thing I love about this podcast is being able to connect stories to places, especially, you know, if, if they still exist and you can still drive by them. And now, you know, yeah. oh, I know what used to be there. Yeah. You know, I, I know what was there and and maybe feel a sense of community. Absolutely. Deep roots. Deep to, roots. To have those deep roots. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there any other places that you guys want to talk about? Oh, I'm sure that we could. I'm hungry. I need night. to go eat dinner. But Connell's hungry. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we go, Connell. Yes. You have a project coming up or that you're working on right now. Can I you have tell several. us? Which can one? you tell us about your project? I am producing a, f- a film documentary on Ruth Drake and Sarah Lundstedt, who were a young Mormon lesbian couple uh, who were together for several years who committed suicide together in November of 1926 on Beck Street uh, because their family was trying to separate them uh, from each other to send Ruth to L.A. and Sarah to Seattle. And rather than be separated... They went for a drive up to Ogden and came back and stopped on Beck Street and broke out a uh, thermos of soda pop and cyanide and died on the side of the street there. And, you know, thank heavens, the newspapers interviewed family, neighbors, friends, landladies, uh, and also had access to their love letters and their diaries and quoted extensively from them. So we've got a pretty complete... We have yeah. a really clear photo, photo <laughs> a really clear image of, of what their lives were, you know. And so I'm uh, Eric Hutchins up in Park City is uh, directing and... Uh, we're, we're getting underway. So uh, can I put in a plug for my yes. GoFundMe.com yes. slash Ruth and Sarah and help us to fund it. Project Rainbow just gave us a, a nice grant of $4,500. Fantastic. So we can pay Randy to be one of our consultants. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and Megan Garcia is a, is a lesbian uh, historian locally, and she will be in the... The, the documentary as well. And I'm so excited for this. So I am too. And I'll post that up on the socials to that link. So we okay. can uh, help you raise some money for your GoFundMe. Cause this is definitely a project that yeah. needs to come to fruition. And yes. we, we plan on having the debut Sundance. Nice. I'm, and I won an Oscar for best <laughs> documentary. I am shooting for the stars. Damn it. Yes. <laughs> Do it. So look, look for you at Sundance. And if anyone listening is hooked up with Sundance. Yeah. Yeah. Give Connell a call. Yeah. Especially if it's Brad Pitt. Yeah. <laughs> Brad Pitt. Really? <laughs> he is single now. So, you know, Yeah. I'm just kidding. Idris Elba. <laughs> there you go. All right. Now we're on it. Oh, well, gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you. For coming by tonight and spending a couple hours here and, and taking us on this great road trip. Yeah. I think this is awesome. And I'm glad that we were able to make this project come together 
somehow. And I think this is awesome. And you're paying for dinner, right? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I'll meet you there. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, gentlemen. Thank, Thank you. you. As usual, check out my Instagram and Facebook pages at Demolish Salt Lake Podcast to see historic photos of the places we toured. Now, if you're on Twitter, follow me at Demolished SL Pod. If you like the podcast, please subscribe. The summer road trip series continues in the next episode with a drive to Provo to visit the Territorial Insane Asylum. We'll see you then.